Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Coming up on the show today, we're discussing the now or never climate report from the IPCC. And we've got massive news in particle physics. <laughs> massive, exciting news. Uh, we've got reporter Alex Wilkins with us to talk about that. Hi, Alex. Hey, how are you doing? We've also got a report on a new proposed function of dreaming. And we're looking at the latest on COVID. And we've got a story about a New Zealand cricket with two sets of genitalia. <laughs> what a lineup! Um, and I have to tell you some breaking news before we get into all that. There's a peer-reviewed paper just come out in the journal PLOS One that shows that podcast listeners are on average more open, intellectually curious and non-neurotic than non-listeners. And that's a global survey. Hooray and congratulations listeners on yeah. all of those qualities. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking of being intellectually curious, if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a huge 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod20. Now, we're going to start, of course, with the latest major report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You will already have heard about this. It makes emphatically clear that the window for avoiding more than 1.5 degrees of global warming has almost closed. And the only way we can avoid nightmarish warming is to make immediate and drastic cuts to carbon emissions. Yeah, and this week I wanted to look at how we can make those cuts because, of course, scientists have been calling for the emissions cuts since at least the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. Um, and the question is, of course, politically, how are we going to make it happen? You know, literally, how are we going to get off of fossil fuels in time? Yeah, all of society needs to change. That's a, a huge problem. <laughs> yeah. And the IPCC report did make quite scary reading, uh, but searching through it, there was lots of interesting stuff, actually. And and this in particular jumped out at me. There's a bit that said a quarter of fossil fuel projects faced with resistance from climate activists end up being cancelled. Mm, yeah, more than I would have expected, actually. It really does mm. show the power of activism and protest in this. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, the massive swell of young people around the world who are climate activists, and that is really making a difference. And um, there's another thing that I found interesting in the report, and that's the growing use of litigation to challenge and stop governments and corporations making emissions and basically to use courts to hold them to account. So to talk about this, I spoke with Joanna Setzer of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change in the Environment, and she's an author on Chapter 13 of this new IPCC report, and her thing is all about litigation. Joanna, thanks for joining us. Now, look, the, the report is massive, isn't it? And we've heard different takes on it, different snippets on it. What's a takeaway message for you if you're able to have one? Well, my particular angle and interest in, in this report is really on how it brings litigation to part of the story of how we can address this problem. So litigation uh, wasn't present in previous IPCC reports as a governance tool. It had a very small appearance in the last assessment report of Working Group 2 on adaptation, but now it has this quite prominent presence in the Working Group 3 report as a tool to address mitigation. And not only it acknowledges the number of cases, but also that there has been an impact in driving mitigation and driving action in reducing emissions as a result of these lawsuits. Yeah, so it says that, what, there's 37 cases it lists that have challenged states' efforts to cut emissions or to adapt to climate change. Could you give us some examples or a, an example of one of those? 
very good examples are, of course, the Urgenda case. That was the first uh, landmark case filed in the Netherlands against the Dutch government, which required the government to reduce emissions. But most recently, a very important case has been filed and won in Germany. So the federal court in Germany, again, decided in favor of the plaintiffs, a group of youth that are claiming that the lack of ambition from the government threatens their right to uh, a future and human rights. There's a series of cases in Brazil that have been filed by political parties. So political parties of the opposition challenging the Bolsonaro administration for basically dismantling the governance system uh, that already existed in Brazil that is resulting in a sharp increase in deforestation. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because for years now, we've been talking about how we're just going to make these giant cuts in emissions and how we're going to change our society. And people talk about degrowth and some people talk about we have to shift away from capitalism and consumerism. But those things are are so gigantically difficult to uh, to imagine happening that uh, you know sometimes i've felt a, a loss and, and maybe this litigation is is really a really promising way to start making the the emissions cuts we need Look, I'm afraid that litigation won't resolve the problem. <laughs> we need oh, no. <laughs> much more. But what it does create is an, an additional level of accountability. We've gone a, a long way to get finally governments to commit to reductions, companies also making commitments. However, it's almost easy to make commitments if you're not going to deliver on them. And if you didn't have this layer of courts or other administrative bodies that have some enforcement capacity, then you were really just left with promises. So in terms of increasing the chances of promises to be delivered, yes, I think litigation has a role, but also litigation has grown to an extent that the risk of litigation can also change behavior. So you see, for example, now companies and governments they will think twice before doing something they were doing before because they will think, well, you know, if I promise this and I can't deliver, I might be sued. Or you know, if this is considered greenwashing, then I will be sued. And so that the risk of being taken to court can also change behaviour now. I mean, we've got a couple of things spring to mind in the UK as a result of the invasion of Ukraine, you know, the change in energy policy. The UK government is looking at fracking for shale gas. And given that the UK has has signed the Paris Agreement, it's got a legally binding pledge to get to net zero, you know, couldn't we sue the UK government for starting fracking again? Yeah, well, the UK government is being sued just recently. There have been four lawsuits against the government challenging its um, inadequate or unlawful paths to reach net zero. So uh, these lawsuits are all fairly recent and are still ongoing. But definitely there will be that level of scrutiny where you just contrast what is being promised and how these policies are going to be delivered, especially considering that there are alternatives. The UK has plenty of wind. Wind has been proven viable. So why are you being inconsistent to your commitments when there are alternatives? And all of this can potentially be brought through litigation. And the other one that springs to mind is is the Cambo oil field off Scotland, uh, with Shell thinking about looking into that again. I mean, maybe that's something that litigators should should look at. 
Well, it, they have already. <laughs> the UK uh, did already face a threat of legal action due to the explosion of the Campbell oil f- field in Shetland. The case hasn't been successful, but that also meant that Shell reconsidered its investments. So again, this is where litigation increases the risk of, for example, financing or going forward with uh, such a project. And and a lot of emphasis now has been also put into litigation that challenges the financial side, because after all, yes, the government is approving, but someone is financing that. So we're increasingly seeing litigation against financiers challenging this type of investment or um, projects. That's fascinating. And as she says, litigation, it's not going to solve the problem on its own, but it's going to have a growing role. Yeah. And so, yeah, along with activism, these are two things, two things we can do to bring about change. Now, every now and then, maybe a year, every few years, if, if we're lucky, a really big thing happens in physics and everyone in the New Scientist newsroom gets very excited. Yeah. And we had one such moment this week. We did. And it's about a fundamental particle in the zoo of particle physics that's not quite like it should be. And if it's if that's really the case, then that's, it's got huge implications for the standard model of particle physics and basically for our understanding of reality. Um, right, Alex, this is where you come in. Uh, what's going on here? So an experiment which finished more than a decade ago now, it's a, a collider at Fermilab in Illinois, a huge particle accelerator, finally released their results. And that result was for the measurement of the mass of the W boson. W boson is a fundamental particle. It's involved in something called the weak force, which describes how radioactive decay and all sorts of nuclear processes happen. Scientists have been measuring this particle's mass since the 1980s. And all the measurements we've got so far agree with each other and the theory, the standard model. But the mass of the W boson they've measured is completely different than the results we've measured so far and what's predicted from the theory. So because it lies so far outside what we predicted and what we've measured up to this point, physicists are now really scrambling for an explanation. Could it be something wrong with the research? Is there an error in the standard model's calculations? Or what's most tantalising is, are there some unknown forces or particles or even new physics which could be affecting the result? Yeah, but that's what people have been looking for for a long time. Was there a what was the feelings like from people you spoke to? Because I spoke to one particle physicist and he was really gobsmacked and said, you know, no, the mass of the W boson is supposedly really well measured. Yeah, no, well, it is, it is supposed to be. And all the, <laughs> yeah. all the physicists I spoke to said this result could be really, really monumental. Mm. There was even one who said it could be mind boggling. Another <laughs> said that if it turns out to be correct, it could be the biggest discovery in particle physics since the standard model was confirmed 60 years ago. Mm. It, it's a really peculiar result, and it's caused a lot of eyebrow raising in the in the wider particle physics community. So not not to ask the sceptical obvious, but remembering things like faster than light neutrinos and, and all the rest yeah. of it, how, how sure can we be about this finding? Sure. Well, I, I think it's a really important point. And all of the physicists I spoke with gave a huge caveat to their amazement and said, there needs to be a lot more work in the coming weeks and months to figure out where this discrepancy might come from. Hundreds of the very best physicists in the world have worked on this one measurement for over 10 years. So the likelihood they made a mistake in their calculation, it's not impossible, but it's very, very small. I spoke to one of the authors of the study, and he was super confident that the precision of their measurement was completely correct. But that doesn't mean the result is necessarily correct and, and true. We'll just have to sort of find out. 
Now, the discrepancy could come from the method they used, which is slightly different from previous measurements. This experiment used protons and antiprotons colliding at each other and then measured the particles coming off, whereas previous experiments have just used protons. The discrepancy could also be from previous particle measurements that they've used in their calculations. So if one of those are off, it could set the result off. There's going to be a huge amount of scrutiny over the coming days, but given the amount of time it took to produce it, there probably won't be any immediate and obvious errors. Yeah, I mean, 10 years in the making. Um, And as you say, physicists have been trying to pick apart the standard model for years. So it looks like this is a big thing to get to grips with. Um, So what are your initial thoughts as to to what it means, you know, if it does turn out to be correct? So if the result turns out to be true, it will mean that the standard model, this model we have for how all the particles in the world interact, will need to be modified. Just how much it needs to be changed depends a bit upon who you speak to, but there's at least one physicist I spoke to who said it would require an entirely new structure to explain it, rather than just the odd new particle. Now, theorists spend their entire careers trying to explain anomalous results like these ones, so it's not so easy to predict how it's going to change the theory. The authors that I spoke to in their report talk a bit about supersymmetry, which is a set of theories that suggest that there might be a whole new group of particles that are sort of mirror images of ones we have now. Some of the scenarios in those supersymmetry theories might be able to explain this new mass, but none of them are really ready-made or or neatly fit with the result. So there's going to be a load of theories put forward in the coming weeks and months about what this might mean. But I I think the experimentalists who have been measuring these masses for decades will want loads more data before any changes really happen. We're going to have to wait for more data from the Large Hadron Collider, most likely, because it's the only place that can actually measure these W bosons now that the Fermilab Collider is shut down. But these new results aren't going to be as precise as the ones from Fermilab, so there's still going to be a huge amount of work to understand what this result might mean. We've got another online talk in our Big Thinkers series to tell you about. Yes, this one is Physics at the End of the Universe with Katie Mack. It's taking place on Thursday the 28th of April at 6 to 7pm BST and then again online on demand. The Big Bang Theory tells the story of the beginning of the universe, our cosmic home for the last 13.8 billion years, but how does the story end? Join astrophysicist Katie Mack as she shares what modern astrophysics tells us about the ultimate fate of the cosmos and what the catastrophic destruction of all reality would look like to anyone still around to see it. Find out more and book your ticket at newscientist.com slash cosmos. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And now we've got a story that's close to Rowan's heart. <laughs> yeah, um, I have to tell you about this, and it might be marginally less important than the IPCC report or the physics story we just had, but uh, it's about a famous group of crickets in New Zealand called wetters. Wetters. You have to remind me what wetters are. Wetters are these, um, yeah, you probably have to be a, a kiwi or into insects to know what they are. That they're, they're really, they're a flightless group of crickets that really big and heavy, some of the heaviest insects that we have. And they deserve a wider audience, I think. And now we have an excuse for it. So uh, go on. <laughs> yeah. All right. So male crickets don't have a penis or an intermittent organ as such. And what they do instead is put their sperm in a package called a spermatophore and they give that to the females that, and they attach that to her and then the sperm will make their way inside. And in many crickets, the males make sure that this spermatophore is also very tasty and nutritious and the female eats it and then she has lots of energy to produce her eggs. Mm, so where is this going? <laughs> right, well, so with the, these wetters in New Zealand, the animals have taken it a step further and the females evolved two sets of genitalia. So one to receive the sperm and the other to receive a, an extra bundle of ejaculate that they eat to uh, survive the stress of parenting. Wow, this, this is amazing, isn't it? Because it's like evolution has bolted on like a whole new function onto the animal's sex system. Yeah, exactly. It's um so she's evolved this secondary genitalia and it's shaped like a bent elbow with a forked tip and the male uses his his genitals to grab onto them while he deposits this extra ejaculate onto onto her abdomen. So the the secondary genitals are, are basically a handle yeah, for the male to hang on to. And the extra ejaculate doesn't contain any sperm. You know, that'd be wasteful because she's just going to eat this. But it is full of nutritious proteins. And she, so the thinking is that, the, that it helps sustain her because for the next six months, she goes underground to uh, care for, for her eggs and the newly hatched uh, baby crickets. I'll put some pictures of it online. Uh, it's amazing stuff. I hope that last segment doesn't give anyone nightmares or weird dreams, but if it does, then you should discuss those dreams with someone. <laughs> yeah, nice segue, uh, because this next story is about uh, a new theory for the function of dreaming. Uh, and it's interesting because most explanations for dreaming, like ones about that it's to do with memory consolidation, are about neurological things that happen while we're asleep. But this is about a benefit for dreams proposed that happens after we wake up. And it's been put forward by Mark Blagrove and Julia Lockhart at the University of Swansea. And I spoke with Mark about this earlier. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for joining us. Now, when we last spoke, it was about the work you'd done around how dreams may function as a way to process our emotions. And now you've got a new proposal, which concerns what we do when we wake up from dreaming. Can you take us through it? I'd been undertaking a collaboration with an artist, Julia Lockhart, in which we discussed people's dreams, partly as a basis for getting them to have insight about themselves from discussing the dreams. We realised that a side effect of this was that we were having quite empathic feelings towards the people who were sharing the dreams. As a result of that collaboration, I therefore conducted experiments with, with several co-authors, including Julia Lockhart, in which we 
got pairs of people to discuss a dream of one of them. And we used a measure of how much empathy each person had towards the other person. And what we found was that the person who was discussing the dream with the person who had the dream had an increased amount of empathy towards the dream sharer. So they could see things more from that person's perspective. They understood the emotions on the experiences that the other person was going through. And we speculated that maybe in hunter-gatherer societies, if people had shared their dreams with each other, then an empathic effect would have occurred and that this would bond the group together and it would have a similar effect as storytelling. And storytelling is known to have an effect of group bonding and of socialising people so that they get to know social norms for each other. So I was thinking when I read the paper that often that there is a jokey response, at least when I say, let me tell you about this dream I had, where you know people roll their eyes, go, oh no, he's going to tell us about a dream. But you know, actually, I, I did realise that you do feel empathy for the other person when when they tell you mm. your their dream. So it makes sense. And so you think that the weird nature of dreams themselves might be partly in order to to make us talk about them. Yes, that's right. Because we do have a scientific issue and a scientific problem of why are dreams narratives. One view that of why dreams are narratives is that memory itself is narrative-based. And if we want to memorize what's happened to us in the day, we have to code it as stories. The other explanation could be that we daydream in the day and dreaming is a byproduct of that daydreaming. But it yeah. is possible that another process has occurred, which is the one that you've just mentioned, that because dreams can be interesting to other people and you tell them to other people, there could have been a selective pressure to make them more interesting. Dreams could have even started off really quite rudimentary, you know, as they are in human children. And what happens with dreams which are rudimentary in, in humans is they become more and more complex over the years until people are teenagers. And then they have these fully fledged emotional dreams with plots, lots of characters. So let's have the people who are around you in the dream because that will make them more interesting to the other people when you yeah. tell them. Uh, events that haven't occurred, because if the dream is simply a repeat of what's been occurring, the people you are talking to know all that already. Yeah. And so the fact that dreams are fictional, and in our work um, we've shown that half of dreams occur in an environment that is new, that the dreamer does not take directly from the environments they've got around. All of these factors bring in the idea that the dream is novel and it's fictional. And so what this theory is proposing is that there's been a selective pressure to make these interesting fictional novel dreams. And you talk about human self-domestication too, which is the idea that people evolved greater self-control and less aggressive tendencies and a keener sense of empathy for others. But I guess the idea is that sharing dreams and talking about our dreams, that's the idea that this contributed to our, our own domestication. Yes, what would occur when the sharing of a dream happens is that some of the time uh, a vulnerability of the person would be said. So some of the times it may be a nightmare. Some of the times it may refer to bad experiences that the person has had. And in a way, it forces the person to disclose themselves in a similar way to how blushing 
forces us to disclose ourselves. And blushing may be very uncomfortable for the person, but it's very useful for the species because yeah. it helps to keep everybody communicating with each other. And so the idea here would be that you would wake up from a dream, you often wouldn't know what it was about, and you would you would just say it. And this is certainly what happens when, when dreams are told to us in, in groups. Sometimes people can say a dream and they don't really know where it's going to lead. And a level of self-disclosure can then occur as a result of it. It's funny, as you said, so much work has been done on dreams. And now you've come up with this proposal. It, it seems quite, I don't say obvious, but, you know, mm. everyone talks about their dreams, don't they, when you wake up? And so it seems it seems funny. No one thought of, of well, what's the function of, of that before? Mm. Where are you going to go next with it, though? What, what else do you need to right. find out about this theory? Yes, you're, you're quite correct there that the there's been a very individualistic view of dreaming in dream research. And there'd been very little research on what's the effect on other people of discussing the dream. With current experiments, one thing to look at is what is it about the dream content that aids empathy? Is it that more negative dreams produce more empathy? One of the interesting possibilities is that, in fact, positive dreams can elicit empathy. The other issue is looking at hunter-gatherer societies and working out what are the benefits that they show in discussing dreams? Is there any level of self-disclosure happening for these dreams? Now, yeah. it may not be. It may be that self-disclosure arose later on and that those original dreams became more complex because they were seen as giving information about the environment. So in other words, they would have a similar function to religion and stories. Wow, um, I'm going to remind myself of this the next time someone tell, tries to tell me about their dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, Marion. And we've got loads of dream stories if you want to find out more about all the amazing things that dreams do to our brains. We'll post a link to some of those in our show notes. And now to COVID, which does just refuse to go away. Mm. Yeah, so we're seeing a big wave right now. Recently, as many as one in 13 people in England were infected and levels are still high, uh, probably somewhere in the region of one in 16. There's always a bit of a time lag to these things. Right. And uh, is this because there's another variant? Um, yes and no. So almost all infections in England now are BA2, which is a different sublineage of the same Omicron variant. When Omicron first hit, most infections were the other sublineage BA1. We know that BA2 is more transmissible than BA1, which of course itself was more transmissible than previous variants. But that isn't the whole story by any means. We certainly expected to see a big rise in infections following the removal of all legal COVID rules in England. And, right. and exactly what's happened yeah and what about recombinants like the delta cron yeah the latest data suggests that a small number of infections in england are recombinants of ba1 and ba2 so that's like a, a hybrid virus with bits of, of each of those sublineages one of those recombinants is known as xe and early tests suggest that itself may be 10 percent more transmissible than ba2 oh. um so XE, uh, that's a mashup of two Omicron sublineages, but there are also recombinants of Omicron and Delta variants now. And, and so those are the ones that are often referred to as Delta Cron. Well, so how are these recombinants happening? Yeah, uh, so to some extent, they're, they're kind of a, a product of having such high infection levels, really, because they're made when a cell in a person is infected simultaneously with two different forms of the coronavirus. 
And as both those viruses replicate, their genetic material gets mixed up and can form a, a recombinant virus with features from each one. So as our reporter Michael LePage says, it's essentially the viral version of sex. So with such a high level of infections in England right now, um, what are we to make of the rising numbers of people in hospital with COVID or even, you know, sadly dying within 28 days of a positive COVID test? Is COVID the cause of all this or are people ill with something else and just happen to have COVID too? Yeah, that's a big question, you know, with such huge numbers. And we know that the vaccines have have had a big effect in bringing down um, some of the severe symptoms and and outcomes from COVID. But according to Claire Wilson, our reporter, um, who wrote an interesting piece for us on this this week, around half of COVID hospital cases at the moment are incidental, which means that they're in hospital with COVID rather than for COVID, which is one of the ways that people are talking about this. But as Claire writes, you can't actually dismiss these as being unimportant because even if COVID isn't a patient's primary illness, it can still exacerbate their condition and worsen their prognosis. And it also makes providing healthcare that much harder. Um, So of course, hospitals are filled with older or otherwise more vulnerable people. And it's important to keep COVID positive patients separate from others. But that can mean that those people who have incidental COVID may get less specialist attention because they're having to be separated in some way. They may be further away from specialist doctors. Thanks, Penny. And that's it for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guests this week, Alex Wilkins and Mark Blagrove and Joanna Setzer. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Bye for now and take care. We'll see you next week. Bye. See you next week. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.